This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We're in some of the most trying times that the world has ever faced right now. And bearing in mind the events of the past two years, it's understandable that many of us are today finding some things difficult. But it may not just be the fallout from living with a pandemic that's causing this if it is. After all, we are each unique and we're only human and anything can weigh on you heavily, can't it? But no one has to feel by themselves if there is something out there that may be stopping you from being the person that you want to be, if there's something that's interfering with your happiness, or preventing you from achieving your goals or your wants. They really don't, because there is someone there to reach out to, always. If any of this sounds familiar, and you may feel that you need to talk to someone professional who can help, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp offers is a worldwide, much more affordable service than any of your traditional offline counselling, and in which it assesses the issues you may be facing and calling on its broad range of expertise available, with specialists in a vast range of issues, some of which you may not have locally available to you. BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, one selected that best suits your needs for professional counselling. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating confidentially online with your own selected personal counsellor, someone whom you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, or whom you can message anytime you want or feel you need to, and from whom you can expect timely, thoughtful, and most importantly, helpful responses back from. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. So in the words of definitely Liam and Noel Gallagher, and certainly not that monster glitter, hello, hello, it's good to be back. A very warm welcome to the opening tale of Series 7 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, which is still the premier North Wales spare room based one man and his cat true crime podcast that aims to bring you each time around tales of the unfamiliar, the obscure, the often forgotten and the horrifyingly bizarre cases of true crime that I've sourced from the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland. Now, it's like unpressing pause here really, as pretty much the best part of Bugger All has changed in the month during the Between series break. I'm of course still Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The negative coloured almost toothless peaks is still here as ever, 
and I know that may sound sometimes like I think he's a bit of a pest, but he isn't. I can't really begin to describe to you just how beloved he is to me, of course. And the bottom line, you lot are here too. Some returning, some perhaps for the first time. But all the wonderful enthusiasts that make the show possible. It's fantastic being back with you after the series break, and having you back joining me, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I do hope, as you do, that 2022 has started fine for each and every one of you. Perhaps even by now too, your Yule hole isn't getting such of a stretching. So, if something works fine, then you don't bugger about with it, do you? You may give it a bit of an oiling and some TLC, but you don't take it apart and change it. So for Series 7, and it's unreal saying that, Series 7, bloody hellfire then you'll find us pretty much business as usual here. It's like putting an old shoe on or taking your bra off of an evening because I gather that there's nothing quite more satisfying. Am I right, ladies? There may be a couple of new features that will appear this series, but you can expect your two, your three, your umpteen part tales. There will be a Monsters of Case, a Listener Penned episode. I'm hoping a crossover or some work with some of the other UK shows. And this time around... I'll be having a true crime holiday where I venture to research and cover a case from different shores. Now during the break that wasn't a break really, I've curated some grim tales I really have, but also some lighter cases, tales that I found proper fascinating. I had a fair few days researching plenty, and may even have gotten out and about for a tale, you never know. And some that I've picked out were new ones to myself, while a couple of others have been on the peripheral for a couple of years. One since the end of the first series, and that's the opener tale for this time around, which will take up the first couple of episodes, and which we shall get onto only marginally quicker than you'd realise you were at a party rather than a fucking work event. I must say before we begin though, thank you so much for the feedback and kind words that I received concerning my last series of the show. As I said when I reviewed it at the start of the year, it was my favourite series to have done so far. Certainly the most challenging one, and I set myself a high bar for it. So for this one, I shall strive to try and better the last. It's always good to push yourself, I think. And though I don't know if I'll be able to, all I can do is my best to. A big thank you goes out also to both the show's returning and new Patreon supporters, with shout-outs going out to, and you've got to bear with me here a bit, Shane Kinnear, Brett, Emma Greaves, Matt Faraday, Hanny Schmeichel, Mark HB, Lily Jones, Claire Parker, Sean Astley, Kai Sanderson, Kat Lowe, Catherine Hardin, Gaynor Parkinson, Emily Colkett, Lynn Lockwood, Sue Ellen Behrens, Laura Barkley, Simone Simpson, Jill McKenna, Carol Steele, Sonia Farrer, Verity, Wendy Williams, Anita Ray, Kelly Cooper, Nancy Crandall, Susan Phillip, and David W., plus Joe Billington, Rob Hampton, Julie Smythe, EJ, Mandy Atchum, Laura Jagger, Laurie Chadwick Jenkins, Elaine Arigo, Alexis King, Sally Worsley and Susan Mulrooney who have each opted to annually support the show. With apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name wrong there. Now that support has proper increased a fair bit over the series break and I hope that some more horrors over the holidays help bridge the gap between series somewhat. I do mean it when I say thank you all so very kindly, you guys each and every one rule, you really do. And aside from the stuff that's gone out to some, 
I hope that each and every one of you has managed to at least make a start on motoring through the 30, I think it's 30, yeah, unreleased bonus episodes that being a Patreon supporter gets you. If anyone out there listening fancies joining these guys and hearing the tales behind unreleased bonus episodes such as The Mystery of Leatham Street, The Beauty in the Bikini, The Murder of Janie Shepherd, or The Samaritan and the Salvationist, that's just some of those on offer, Then as always, there's a link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it, or you can just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there if you like the convoluted do-it-yourself way. It's so simple to do that if it liked music, it would listen to shit like Doja Cat, whatever that bollocks is all about, someone please tell me. And it's quicker to do than Novak Djokovic crossing Australia off his holiday destination list forever. The next bonus tale will be coming soonest, folks. It is chosen and it's researched, but we've had a new series to prep. One that begins right now. The focus of the tale that I've selected to open the new series with, this episode and the following one, concerns an individual, a name that's buzzed around my head for several years, as I said, almost since I first began The Enthusiast, really and whose actions and crimes concerned are not massively familiar ones among the public conscious, though of course, they've transformed the lives of those concerned beyond belief. It's a name that could easily have been a candidate for any series Monsters Of episode, although for this one, I wouldn't even know where to pigeonhole him into exactly if I did. Why his is a name that stayed in my mind for up some near 35 years now, who knows? But that's the same reason why I choose cases to cover like Violet Milsom's, which I did a few series ago, or Pickering, or The Beast of Jersey, and so on. If they're tales that hook me, as these have, then they stick in my mind, and I want them to hook you too. The individual is today still incarcerated as a Category A prisoner, and although he's in the autumn of his life now, advanced in years, I believe not for a second that he is today any the less dangerous than he was when he was first imprisoned. I'm sure that as the tale progresses, you'll come to agree with me. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, with a warmest welcome back to a brand spanker of a Series 7, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for our opening tale, a tale I've entitled The Creature That Stalked the Cobbles. To begin with, we head back to the early 1980s and up to the northwest of the UK. Now, if you're a long time listener to the show and you've heard me going on about Ken Barlow and his naughty lolly, then you'll know he's a character and a top swordsman from a show here in the UK called Coronation Street and which if you've never seen, and that seems a totally bizarre thing to say, imagining for a second that someone has never seen Corrie, then you can picture the area that it's set in, and more specifically, the type of housing on Corrie, terraced or townhouse, which may be more familiar to some listeners. Terraced or back-to-back housing, whereby a row of attached dwellings share side walls, was in the 19th century the default typology for low-cost, high-density housing resulting in hundreds of thousands of these springing up in many northern and midland industrial cities during their rapid expansion following the Industrial Revolution, 
cities like Manchester, Liverpool, Nottingham, Birmingham and Leeds. They were cheap properties to build and therefore relatively inexpensive for occupants to rent and the way they were arranged along streets and in courts crisscrossed with cobbled alleyways separating their back gardens assisted in creating the potential for neighbourliness and a sense of community. There are still some surviving examples today. There are several in my hometown, perhaps there are in yours, and are certainly several within the north and northwest of England, although they're not so much built today. Back in the 1980s, such houses in the northwest of the UK, complete with their facing backyards and cobbled alleyways, were the hunting grounds of a dangerous predator, one who struck at random, and although with an MO that was established over time, didn't confine himself to a certain and specific area. County lines meant nothing to him, nor did distance from and or familiarity with the area. The geographical scale of the offending, even when examined today, was astounding and disturbing. When I come to describe the events that would come almost to be a blueprint of the offender's methods, just imagine this occurring across the north of the country, and imagine the fear that must have been struck into hearts. It's early in the morning of Monday 7th of September 1981, and in the kitchen of a terraced house in the Sharrow area of Sheffield in the county of South Yorkshire. The 26-year-old housewife had just 10 minutes before seen her husband off to work and, closing the front door, set about to busy herself with the daily chores of being a stay-at-home mother of a three-year-old girl. I can imagine there's always plenty to do there, right? After tidying around in the front room of the property amidst trying to entertain the three-year-old, the woman headed into the kitchen and began to clear away the remnants of that morning's breakfast filling the sink with water to wash up the breakfast utensils and crockery. With the sound of the local radio station breakfast show echoing around downstairs, plus with her mind preoccupied by the various tasks she had to do that day, she may not have heard the backyard gate of the property open and close, and she didn't even look up from the washing up to glance through the net curtain of the kitchen window, because after all, there was nothing but the backyard and gate leading onto the alleyway behind to see. Suddenly, however, she was shocked out of any preoccupied thoughts, for there was a crash as the back door to the property burst open, and the woman was then confronted with a terrifying sight. A large, powerful-looking figure, masked in a balaclava, stood blocking the doorway, where he just physically kicked in the door. In his gloved hand, he held a large, sharpened screwdriver, and pointing it menacingly, he slammed the door shut and advanced towards the woman, who was too terrified to scream, for in her terror, her paramount thought was for the safety of her three-year-old daughter. Describing how she felt almost 30 years later, the woman recalled, I just wanted to pick her up. Instead, the masked intruder grabbed the woman and gruffly asked her if she had any money, to which she replied that she didn't have much, offering him the few coppers that she had in her purse, hoping this would appease him and he would leave. He pocketed this and then discarded her handbag and its contents onto the kitchen floor, before pushing the woman into the front room of the property. As her three-year-old daughter cowered behind the sofa, 
terrified by the sudden strange events in her home and too frightened to even whimper, the intruder forced the woman back onto the sofa and roughly undressed her. Tearing a cushion cover off, he forced this over the woman's head and then, holding the sharpened point of the foot-long screwdriver to the woman's throat, he savagely raped her. When he'd finished the horrific assault, he then dragged the terrified woman off the sofa and upstairs and into the bedroom, where he assaulted her once again. The intruder was in the house for a total of some 35 minutes before fleeing through the back kitchen door. 35 minutes. That's the stuff of nightmares indeed, isn't it? When she was certain that the intruder had gone, the woman immediately scooped up her tearful child and made her way, distressed and terrified, out of the house and to a neighbour's, where she breathlessly came out with what had happened to her. Within moments, the emergency services had been contacted and were winging their way around to the Sharrow Street, where upon their arrival, the woman and her daughter were immediately conveyed to the Sheffield Royal Hallamshire Hospital for examination. There were thankfully found to be no injuries to the child, and physically, the woman had escaped with mere scratches and bruising. But psychologically for both the mother and her daughter, the event signalled the beginning of a period of psychological turmoil that would last each of them for several years. The daughter for several years had nightmares and could not be left alone for long periods, also developing a fear of masks as a result whilst her mother had been left so traumatised as a result of the attack that for a long period afterwards, I'm talking several years, she would barricade furniture against the doors when she was in the house alone, all to prevent any intruder getting in. The psychological prison that evil events such as these leaves the victims in. Now, although an investigation got underway immediately, it soon stalled. No one had witnessed the attacker fleeing from the scene, and the victim could describe little more apart from that a rapist was a large, powerfully built man who smelt unkempt. In a northern accent, he'd spoken to her quietly, but very threateningly and menacingly, leaving her terrified, and she described his piercing cold eyes that almost bore through her. I really thought he'd come to kill me at first, and in a way, he did take a part of my life, the woman described many years later. Although some forensic evidence was removed from the scene, traces of semen that had been left on the woman's jeans and the sofa, the forensic science was not in place at the time to make any form of identification from this. All that could be determined at the time was that the rapist was of blood group A and had a unique enzyme chemistry in his blood that only one in nine males would share. So, with no witnesses and only a limited description, plus a suspect pool of some 4,000 men in the north of England alone with a history of sexual offending, the investigation soon ground to a halt and the case remained unsolved. The woman and her daughter were left for many years to try and rebuild their lives following the attack, but always with that constant thought that the intruder who had bestowed such lasting psychological damage upon them was still out there, a faceless predator with cold staring eyes who could be any man, someone they passed on the street, or the person they sat next to on the bus. 
Imagine carrying that thought, that fear around with you, never knowing and thinking, what if? Indescribable, unimaginable, isn't it? Take a moment to even try and consider it. The events of the attack that I've just described here could almost be the blueprint for a series of attacks that, over the opening years of the 1980s, police across several counties in the north of England, but predominantly the northwest, came to recognise were the work of one man, an offender that became known as the Coronation Street Rapist, due to the type of location he favoured attacking in. Over a horrific series of assaults, the hallmarks of the offender became all too familiar. The majority of them took place in a terraced house, usually early in the morning and never later than 11 o'clock, with the victims ranging from girls in their mid to late teens to housewives in their mid to late twenties to early thirties. Having seemed to have watched the house, and so knowing that the, any male householder had left, the rapist would force his way into the property through the back kitchen door, choosing brute force over stealth to do so, and in each of the assaults, the rapist was either masked in a balaclava, or had the lower part of his face covered with a scarf, which when done so, allowed the victims to note that the rapist had long, straggly, unkempt dark hair. He spoke quietly in a northern accent, although menacingly, and this, along with the man's sheer size and his cold and piercing staring eyes, would have been enough to instill abject terror into each of the victims, let alone combined with a knife or sharpened screwdriver that the man was always armed with. The rapist showed indifference as to the presence of children at the home, indeed, often attacking in the presence of them, and of the victims who were attacked indoors, these being all but two of the linked series. Each of them would have their faces covered with a pillow or a cushion, with some having their hands restrained behind them. Several of the victims were assaulted more than once, often being initially raped downstairs, before being moved upstairs for a further assault, and in each of the attacks, following the rape, the man would take any money that the victim had, or that was left lying about, although this often seemed to be an afterthought, before fleeing, always leaving the property through the back door. Disturbingly, when the rapist used violence in the assaults, it seemed to increase with each attack, and horrifically, at least two of the victims were left pregnant as a result of their assault. One subsequently suffered a miscarriage, while the other opted for a termination. Seven of the victims were also left requiring substantial psychiatric care for a number of years afterwards, the legacy of the horrific actions of this man. There are just no words, are there? Now, this attack I described before was not realised as part of the series until many years later, but when it was, it was determined to have been at least the fourth attack that year by the same individual. The first identified attack by him was in February 1981, when he broke into the home of a 28-year-old woman in the Manchester area of Middleton, again, just 10 minutes after her husband had left for work that morning. He had attempted to rape the woman in front of her two children, then aged three and a half years and 18 months old respectively, before abandoning the attack and fleeing after robbing her of £20. The following month, 
he committed his first known full rape, attacking a 35-year-old woman in her home in the Lancashire town of Darwin. Bursting into the house just after her two children had gone to school, the victim had her hands tied behind her and her head covered with a pillow before being raped. He displayed a more disturbing pattern of horror during an attack back in Manchester, this time in the Levensholm area in July 1981, when he ensured the compliance of a victim by holding a knife to the throat of her two-year-old child. There was an eight-month lull in attacks that could then be linked to the offender, before he struck again on the 24th of May 1982, this time raping a 33-year-old at her home in Openshaw in Manchester. And then, for 18 months, the attack stopped. The police forces of Greater Manchester and Lancashire, who had already liaised and were sure that they were looking for the same offender, theorised that possibly he was dead or in hospital, but the nagging and predominant suspicion between them was that he may also be serving a prison sentence for unconnected offences. As we've said many times before here with tales that we've covered, crime doesn't bloody wait in line though, does it? And pretty soon, manning levels were otherwise occupied, and the Coronation Street rapist's crimes had been consigned to the unsolved draw. But in December 1983, he was back, where at 7.15am, just six days before Christmas, he struck in Preston, this time unusually outdoors for him, with him grabbing and raping a 15-year-old girl who had just started her morning paper round. 17 days later, on the 5th of January 1984, the same man broke in and raped a 16-year-old trainee nurse at her home in Wigan, before eight days later attempted to rape another paper girl in the same town, this time fleeing when he was disturbed by a passerby. Another rape followed in Oldham at the beginning of February 1984, when a 16-year-old was attacked in her home, before on the 17th of that month, the same man raped a 26-year-old mother of two in the hallway of her home in Middlewich Street in the Cheshire town of Crewe. Police, now alarmed at the escalating frequency of the attacks and the extending geographical range of them, launched a joint inquiry between Greater Manchester, Lancashire, Staffordshire and Cheshire Police Forces that operated out of Lee Police Station in Manchester, the epicentre of the attacks linked to the offender, which was spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Jim Patterson and which was codenamed Operation Osprey. Looking back over the files of attacks that all forces had on their books, beginning in the 1980s, they were able to link approaching 20 separate incidents, rapes, attempted rapes and indecent assaults, that they believed the same man was responsible for, belief that was strengthened when each of the victims concerned were re-interviewed, and the descriptions of the rapist and his MO gleaned from these collated, giving police the physical description of the offender that I gave before, and his modus operandi. And the hunt was very seriously on for him now, for as I said, both the violence used in the attacks and the frequency of them was increasing alarmingly. However, whether the now massive hunt for the rapist, who was confirmed to have struck in all of these force areas, and the publicity that came with it then frightened him off, or whether it coincided with another prison sentence for him, for unconnected offences cannot be ascertained, 
but there were no further attacks, at least that could definitely be attributed to him, for more than three years. I'd be inclined to think that the latter was the reason for the lull myself, personally. It was one of several theories that officers from Operation Osprey considered as possibilities for the cessation of attacks as the weeks became months, with no sign of any further crimes that they could link to the series. Had the rapist left the country? Was he in the nick for something? Or was he in hospital? Had he even died? But, as had happened before, crime doesn't wait in line, and with no further active leads, as time passed, the investigating officers were individually directed to other operational duties as and where they were required, but each of them frustrated that a dangerous rapist that they knew was responsible for a large campaign of serious offences had still not been brought to justice and could resurface at any moment. As frustrating as a resolution as it would have been for them also, there can't have been one of the officers whose mind it hadn't crossed at some point that perhaps the possibility that the rapist was dead would have been the best solution all around, because someone who commits a campaign of atrocity such as that has no place on this earth really, do they? However, in August 1987, what was undoubtedly the same man returned with a vengeance when a young woman was raped in her home in Wigan by a masked attacker in the now all-too-familiar fashion. Later that month, a 23-year-old was attacked and raped at her home in the Hindley area of Manchester, and then, early in the morning of Thursday 17th of September, a passerby heard the screams of a newspaper delivery girl in the Cheshire town of Warrington, and following the sound, interrupted an attempted rape by a masked attacker who fled the scene. It was very quickly established that each of these attacks was almost certainly the work of the individual that police had been hunting since 1981, the results by now all too horrifically recognisable, and Operation Osprey was back in business. And the team had to hit the ground running, because on the back of the offences I've just described, in October 1987, the rapist broke into a house in Presswich in Greater Manchester, and, armed with a crowbar, attempted to rape the female occupant of the property. However, she managed to fight her attacker off, and he fled, with her inflicting several deep scratches to his right wrist as she did so. However, although it wasn't realised until a forensic examination of the victim's bedsheets following her report and the attack was made, but during the scuffle, the would-be rapist had left behind a clue that was to ultimately help identify him, a distinctive gold bracelet. Perhaps smarting after he had now twice been thwarted in his nefarious pursuits, a week after this attempted rape, he struck again in Rochdale, before on the 1st of November 1987, he committed a horrific assault, brutally raping a 20-year-old woman in front of her two children in a home in Hyde. An appeal for information that may lead to the arrest of the rapist was broadcast on the BBC Northwest Tonight programme the following day, complete with a full physical description of the rapist, and a somewhat sanitised outline of the number of offences that the same individual police strongly believed responsible had committed over a number of years. By this time also, forensic science had advanced enough that, Following Dr. Alec Jeffrey's groundbreaking discovery some three years previously, DNA profiling was now available, 
although it was still only somewhat in its infancy. Infancy or not, however, forensic evidence that had been retained from several of the crime scenes from the offences connected with Operation Osprey had been compared using this method and was even back then able to identify the same man as being responsible for at least five of the attacks, with a chance of 596 million to one of it being anyone else. You bloody take odds like that, wouldn't you? Now, the physical description of the rapist that was issued in the appeal, powerfully built, cold staring eyes, with long straggly dark hair, who spoke with a northern accent, who habitually wore grubby double denim and a gold bracelet, and who was often out and about in the very early mornings, prompted several calls to the Lee Incident Room, offering information to Osprey detectives. But two of the calls, which were coincidentally taken by the same detective, were to stand out over the rest. Firstly, an individual who refused to give his real name, but identified himself as Fred, contacted the incident room and offered detectives the information that a man who he knew, though not well, from a pub in the city of Salford where he was a regular drinker, matched the description of the rapist to a T. He furthered that the scruffy individual, whom he knew as Andy and who lived in the Swinton area of Salford, was a heavy drinker who would invariably think nothing of downing up to 15 pints in a lunchtime session, and was a known and violent troublemaker who had a criminal record for offences including violence, burglary and theft. He added to police that the reason Andy stuck out in his mind as a good potential match for the description was, aside from where he lived, the epicentre of the attacks, and the physical match that he had to the description of the rapist, he was also the owner of a distinct gold bracelet, which he would often show off. The caller disclosed that on occasion, when cash was low, Andy would pawn this item, but would always subsequently buy it back when he came into enough funds to do so. It was his pride and joy, as he described it. On the last occasion that he'd seen Andy, the caller said, he was without this gold bracelet, and when asked where it was, he said he'd lost it. Not pawned it, but lost it. With no suspect whatsoever, and intrigued by such a potential decent lead, Police managed to arrange a meeting with the caller for the following afternoon, outside the grounds of Presswich Hospital. It was a meeting which, as good as his word, the caller kept, and at which he offered the full name of the Andy he had described to them the previous day. It transpired that this was the second time in less than 24 hours that this name had been passed to the inquiry team for the same detective who had taken the call from the drinker who had named Andy, had also received a call from a former Lancashire police officer, one who had been retired since 1975, and one who was shown to have displayed remarkable, almost uncanny, foresight. Back in 1973, the former officer told the detective, when he was still a serving police officer, He'd been involved in the prosecution of a then 17-year-old for offences of burglary and indecent exposure, offences which he recalled had been committed in the early morning and against a female complainant. The prosecution had been a successful one and had resulted in a custodial sentence for the youth, and shortly after the trial had concluded, the officer realised that he'd accidentally retained a photograph of the youth 
which had been overlooked in a pocket of one of his suits. But looking at the photograph, something, the officer said, had compelled him to keep it. He couldn't bring himself to throw it away, he claimed. For some reason, he had instead placed it onto a shelf in his wardrobe and kept it, even after his retirement, where he'd subsequently seen it almost every day for the past 14 years. He'd been especially drawn to the cold staring eyes of the youth, eyes that pierced through you, and something in the officer knew that this individual would one day attack again, would attack women. And now, with reports of an early morning rapist at large in the northwest area, a powerfully built, long-haired serial sex attacker with cold, piercing eyes, the retired officer was in no doubt that his much earlier prediction had now materialised. Calling the Osprey incident room, he told the detective, It's that bastard Andrew Longmire that you want. How unreal is that, eh? Boom. Spidey sense off the chart, that, or what? Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Patterson said later, Those two calls gave us just what we needed, the name of the man we were looking for. A check of this individual, 31-year-old Andrew Longmire, revealed a picture of a heavy drinker, a known troublemaker that the consensus of opinions by associates of him who were spoken to showed was not a particularly well-liked one, and one who funded his heavy drinking through burglary. It was discovered through a check of arrest records that Longmire indeed had an extensive criminal record, and had over the years served several custodial prison sentences for crimes including burglary, theft, and indecent exposure. Crucially though, the inquiry team were able to quickly ascertain that whilst Longmire had certainly been serving prison sentences in the breaks between the known linked Osprey incidents, he had been at large for every single one of the known offences they had connected. So, with him as the prime suspect now in the Osprey offences, the house that Longmire shared with his common-law wife, Patricia Wynne Stanley, and the couple's then six-year-old daughter, Simone, council property in Swinton's 3rd Avenue, was immediately placed under police surveillance, but after watching the property for several days, it became apparent that it was deserted and so a search warrant was produced, and entry to the property was effected. Here, a search of the house produced some 36 knives, which were retained and taken away for forensic examination, and alongside several documents and items of clothing that were also seized. The sheets from the bed in the main bedroom were also taken, and sent to the forensic science services up at Chorley for examination. When the sheets were examined, Traces of semen were found on them, and when the profile obtained from these was tested against forensic evidence from the Osprey attacks, it was found to be a perfect match for traces of semen that the rapist had left behind in two of the most recent of the series, the Hindley and Hyde attacks. Now police knew the identity of their rapist, but where was he? It later transpired that Longmire, feeling the heat on him after the television appeal, had told Patricia that during one of his burglaries, he'd been disturbed by the homeowner and had struck him over the head, thinking he had perhaps killed him. The couple, and Simone, had then immediately fled the Swinton area and had moved around the country in a transient lifestyle, never stopping in one place for too long, 
and heading down south as far as the London area and north as far as Scotland. After a few days, however, Patricia and Simone returned to the Swinton area, where Patricia was immediately arrested on suspicion of assisting an offender and was questioned at the Lee Incident Room for two days. She refused to say where Longmire was at the time, quite possibly because she didn't herself know, but told police that for the previous two nights, they had stayed at the Church Inn on King Street in the Shropshire town of Ludlow. Following this information, when shown a photograph of Longmire, the manager there confirmed that this had been the man who had checked into a family room of the hotel, Room 9, an examination of the room revealed it to be covered in Longmire's fingerprints. The hotel manager recalled the party checking into one of the family rooms only a few days previously, and had especially remembered this booking because on the second day of their stay, he had walked past the room they'd been allocated and had heard coming from inside the distinct sound of something being sawn. Concerned then that damage had been made to the furniture in the room, because people do some bloody silly things for who knows what reason in hotel rooms after all, don't they? At the first opportunity that the room was empty, the manager had used his master key and entered it to make an examination, but found the room tidy, with nothing out of place, and every item of furnishings there intact and undamaged. Knowing that Longmire supported himself through burglary, as Patricia had confirmed, when a check of incidents revealed that a burglary had taken place in a Ludlow home not too far from the hotel, in the early hours of the day after Longmire had checked in, acting on a hunch, his fingerprints were checked against those recovered from the scene of the burglary, and were found to be a perfect match. Aside from a quantity of money and jewellery that had been taken from the scene, another pair of items that had been stolen gave police serious cause for alarm, and made the need to find Longmire ever more crucial. Meanwhile, when details of the Osprey offences were put to Patricia, she steadfast denied that Longmire was a rapist, admitting to police that he was indeed a prolific burglar, but certainly not a multiple sex attacker. However, perhaps not wanting to believe that the father of her child was responsible for such horror, but perhaps also realising that the one person you cannot ever lie to is yourself. After a short time, Patricia admitted to an officer, Detective Constable Sue Marchum, that Longmire had begun being sexually violent towards her in their relationship, and had introduced tying her up into their sex life. She also identified the gold bracelet discovered at the scene of the attempted rape in Presswich as belonging to Longmire. No charges were brought against the shell-shot woman, who it became apparent clearly had had no idea that the sexual violence she had suffered from her partner had actually been part of a campaign of rape, that he was expanding to sexually attacking other women also, and she was released from custody after two days of extensive questioning. Meanwhile though, the man who had by now become Britain's most wanted man was still making his way around the country, staying in guest houses and living off the proceeds of burglaries, whilst regularly changing vehicles that he would abandon or torch after just a few days' use. All the while he was at large, Longmire maintained contact with friends of his up in Manchester, and so kept himself informed of any developments in the hunt for him. 
Each of the friends that he spoke to was told by Longmire, they'll never take me alive. And he certainly had with him the means to back this claim up, for it transpired that also stolen during the Ludlow burglary some days before had been a shotgun and a large bag of ammunition. The mysterious soaring noise that the hotel manager had heard had been the sound of Longmire soaring off the stock of the weapon and the lethal, now sawn-off shotgun and ammunition was now with him in the hold-all he carried around. So, now knowing that the already extremely dangerous serial rapist was still at large, but by now armed also with a shotgun and a vow not to be taken alive, it became ever more crucial for police to find him. And would they, without any more horror? Well, we shall find out next time around in the concluding part of The Creature That Stalked the Cobbles, because that is a very manageable, almost perfect place to leave it for now, but there is quite a bit of a tale to come just yet with it, I guarantee you folks. It would have ended up longer than the list of reasons that I'm bored to tears with hearing about the bloody Djokovic saga if I'd not split it up like I have. Plus, when you're writing it, it makes for more concentration and focus on the tale overall. So there's no wrap-up and dissection just yet. I'll save that for the end of the account, which will be coming to you in just a couple of days' time, or next, depending on when you've course listening to this. I hope that it's a tale that so far anyway you found both interesting and informative. I know it's a bit of a disturbing one of course, but I'm sure you've come to expect nothing less here. I shall head off to get that part squared away right now then, so all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon for the concluding part of The Creature That Stalked the Cobbles, which I hope you can join me for. Thanks very much for joining me today all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.